What is a healthy marriage? How can a marriage work? How can it be sustained over time? How can it be protected? How can struggling marriages grow? How can two people flourish together as husband and wife? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you've joined us today. And Jonathan, I'm sure we have some who will be listening who will say, yeah, that, those are the questions I'm asking. You know, I feel like my marriage is in a pretty desperate situation. Sounds like if that's the case, Jonathan, we're, we're in for a message of encouragement and hope. Oh, I think so. The Bible has so much to say to us about healthy patterns for marriage and what it looks like to honor the Lord within marriage. But it is a subject where we're going to find that the teaching of the Bible is often out of step with the claims of our culture and the encouragements of our culture. Uh, the culture has a lot to say about marriage and relationships, and a lot of what the culture has to say about marriage and relationships is ultimately not very helpful. And it's a wholesome and healthy thing to look to the Bible and say, well, what does God have to say? He created us, and he created the institution of marriage. And I would just say, if you're someone who's in the midst of a, a challenging season in marriage or in the midst of crisis, it's my hope and prayer that today's message will be a real help to you. Well, grab a Bible if you're able to do so and join us in the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses today as we begin Marriage According to God's Design. Here is Jonathan. Well, friends, what is a healthy marriage? How can a marriage work? How can it be sustained over time? How can it be protected? How can struggling marriages grow and improve? How can failing marriages in the kindness of God be saved? How can two people flourish together as husband and wife? Marriage is wonderful, but it's not always an easy thing. Sometimes it is anything but an easy thing. The landscape of our society and of our churches is scattered with the debris of broken and breaking marriages. Statistics are a little hard to pin down, but I understand that some, something like 40% of marriages in North America end in divorce. We know too well, don't we, the stories of heartache. A number among us have lived through painful stories or are living through painful stories even today. And so as we approach the teaching of our passage today, we approach it knowing that we need all the help that we can get. We approach it knowing that we actually need a vision from God, a pattern sent down from heaven above, because if we're honest, we really don't know how to make this thing work on our own. And whether you are married or thinking about getting married one day, or whether you are single but eagerly prayerfully supportive of married couples within the church family, this teaching it is, I think we can agree, just so very important for us. As we approach our passage today, we find elements of what the Bible has to say to us on the topic of marriage at first sight rather strange. It seems countercultural at least, and for many it would seem both incomprehensible and quite frankly unacceptable. Now, let's just recognize that frankly right at the outset here, and let's seek with the Lord's help to come honestly to the text. Let's try and do that. Trusting that God is wise, trusting that God's way is good, and knowing in all honesty that we need his help. 
Throughout this section of his letter, Peter has been teaching and showing us what it will look like to live as a saved people, as a people who have been recipients of grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the offer of eternal life through faith in his name. He's been showing us what it'll look like to live as a people who have been saved. He's called us, we remember, to work hard at keeping our conduct among the nations, among the Gentiles, honorable for the sake of our gospel witness and for the sake of the Lord's glory. And in striving to do that, he has instructed us to be very careful to order our relationships appropriately and properly. In particular, he's told us to take care to submit ourselves appropriately to those who are placed by God in leadership over us. In our previous verses, we saw how we are to be subject, if you remember, to the governing authorities, subject as well to masters within the workplace. So we've been looking at some different spheres of life and of activity. We looked at the public square where we're to be subject to the authorities. We looked at the workplace where we're to be subject to our boss. And now comes the home. And the specific and perhaps rather surprising instruction that wives are to be subject to their husbands. So we begin here with a call to wives. Verse 1 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, on one level... The basic meaning of the instruction is clear enough. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. We understand the language. But processing and digesting these words in our cultural time and our cultural place, it could not be more complex, could it? As with the other instructions to be subject in this section of the epistle, there is an assumption here that there exists a proper structure of leadership and authority that ought to be recognized and then lived out. You know, the the emperor should be recognized within the realm. The master should be recognized within the workplace. And here, the husband should be recognized within the home. And actually, the rest of Scripture is clear enough on this. Within within the home, there is a God-given dynamic of leadership. The husband is called upon to take responsibility in a special way for the welfare of the family and to give a loving lead to the family. The dynamic was established actually in the Garden of Eden, but Adam quite quickly demonstrated that he would not faithfully live out that calling at the crucial time when his leadership was so desperately needed at the time of temptation, he was not to be found. And the story of the fall is in part a story of the abdication of proper responsibility to lead under God on Adam's part. Now, we haven't come to the husband's responsibility yet. That's next in the passage. But he may well fail to fulfill that responsibility properly. In fact, all husbands do. But from the wife's perspective, the call here is to welcome and to encourage that leadership and to be willing to follow, not to make the husband's role challenging, not to resent his calling before God. And it's interesting to see the way in which Peter takes this within the passage. Notice that he has a very keen eye here on the wife's gospel witness. You see, he's very aware, acutely aware. There will be a number of women hearing this, receiving this teaching, who have come to Christ by faith, but whose husbands have not come to Christ by faith. And and that'll be the situation, of course, for a number among us today. Remember the sort of headline of the section, chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's wanting to encourage believing wives 
to commend the gospel within their homes and to their husbands. He's mindful, no doubt, that some from the community could be looking on now and, and see a woman who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and assume that this newfound faith will just be subversive within the home, corrosive to the family, just more trouble from these Christians. You know, first it was disruption in the public square, in the marketplace, turning things upside down with this teaching. Now it will be disruption in the home. Just watch. And before a, a skeptical community and before a disconcerted husband, Peter calls the believing wife to be a model witness to the character of Jesus Christ. But how will, this, how will this woman, how will this wife navigate her concern to be a witness to her husband? Surely this is weighing heavily on her heart. She's found forgiveness. She's found life in Christ. She wants her husband to share in these things naturally. How will she point him to Christ? You know, will it be by leaving tracks next to their coffee in the morning? Will it be by dragging him to church, kicking and screaming? Will it be by just berating him? until he believes. No, says Peter. It won't be those things. It will be by showing him the loving courtesy of respecting his leadership, of being subject to him appropriately, so that he might be won without a word, says Peter, by the conduct of his wife when he sees her respectful and pure conduct. Now, that's the thing. That's the thing that's going to commend the gospel. That's the thing that will bring about the much-needed breakthrough. And that's the thing that's going to make all the difference. And for you, if this is your personal situation today, and I know it is for a number, I, I just wonder if this will be both freeing and challenging for you. It, it, freeing, I hope, in the sense that, you know, the responsibility does not fall upon you to reason or argue your husband into the kingdom of God. You don't need to take that weight upon your shoulders personally. You don't need to make your home a place of endless theological debate. You know, the dinner table becomes an apologetics forum every night so that you can't just relax and live life together anymore. Now, that's very freeing, I think. It should be freeing. But it's also challenging. It's also very challenging because the call to be subject to the leadership of another person is not an easy calling for anyone. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Marriage According to God's Design. It is part of our series from the book of 1 Peter called Faith Under Fire. We're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to the message in just a moment. So, who gets to determine what Christianity means? And do you think it's possible that we could still understand the original message after all the centuries of tradition and conflicting ideas that have been floated out there? Well, John Lennox and David Gooding are taking a look at this and throwing some fresh light on these questions, looking at the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And they've written a book that Jonathan wants to send you called The Definition of Christianity. This is our thank you gift for your financial support of Encounter the Truth this month. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, if you joined us a little late, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at the first 12 verses today. So let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Peter now continues to consider what a life will look like for a wife who commends the gospel within marriage. 
And he, he tells us here that the believing wife needs to invest more in her inner beauty than her outward beauty. Now, that's a little countercultural in a society that prizes so much outward appearance. It was tough in the Roman age, actually, when wealthy women sort of flaunted their wealth with expensive clothes and jewelry, ornate hairstyles and all the rest, which were great markers, social indicators of wealth and of standing. It's, it's tough, too, in the Instagram age. It's, it's out of step with a culture that in, invests unfathomable resources in appearance. I gather that the cosmetics industry alone is worth about $50 billion in the United States. That's a staggering sum of money. But we don't struggle to believe it, of course. We know it. And Peter, he's not saying here that the braiding of hair is, is wrong, nor the wearing of any jewelry, nor indeed the wearing of clothing. Verse 3, if we were to push the point to the absurd extreme, he's not saying that these things are wrong, absolutely, in and of themselves, so that Christian wives must make a point of avoiding any concern or interest in them at all. No, I don't think he's taking it that far. I don't think that's his point. Peter is rather calling believing wives to avoid the trap of making their beauty, their outward adorning, a merely external thing, start at verse 3. He's calling them to avoid investing undue time and money in those things while ignoring the truly important adorning that is hidden from the eye, verse 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, untouched by the passage of years or the force of circumstance of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is very precious. In the sight of God, very precious. That's a weighty statement, isn't it? When we reach a moment in Scripture when we're told that something matters very, very much to God, is very, very valuable in his sight, well, we want to sit up, don't we? We want to pay a little bit of attention to that. We want to take notice of it. And Peter says here that there is a beauty that is very precious to God. It's often said, isn't it, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, okay, if that's true, what then is beautiful in the, in the sight of God, in his eye? It is, says Peter, a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, that should be meaningful, and that should be weighty for us who love the Lord and want to care about what the Lord cares about, for us who want to value what he values. But, but again, we've got to note and we've got to observe that this is a little bit out of sync. It's actually very out of sync with the values of our age because our age, our society values and prizes assertiveness, forcefulness, self-advocacy. Those are very high ideals at the present time. And I think that's not an unfair general observation of our culture. But Peter here, he casts a markedly different vision, one which would probably not command a whole lot of respect in our wider society, but which he insists is precious in the sight of God. This hidden inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, says Peter, is imperishable and it is un fading. And you know, as he says that, it touches a little bit of a nerve for us, I think. It touches a nerve because we're all concerned about the ravages of time upon our physicality and appearance. The years aren't particularly kind to any of us. And the vitality of the plastic surgery industry speaks of our concern to do our best to preserve beauty. I saw one plastic surgeon on his website promises that a good facelift will make you feel 10 years younger. 
I don't know about these things, but I was interested to see that he further counsels that a mini facelift, whatever is a mini facelift, a mini facelift around the age 35 or 40 might well save a patient having to do a more major facelift at age 50 or 60. Well, that's good to know, I'm sure. And I have no doubt that trade is pretty robust in his clinic. But Peter says that this beauty, the beauty to which he refers, this beauty is imperishable. It is unfading. It's also timeless in the sense that godly women through the ages have understood this and pursued it, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter alludes here actually to a moment in Genesis chapter 18 when Sarah received the news that she and Abraham would indeed have a child in their old age after a long wait. And in that context, she referred to Abraham as her Lord. She spoke of him with respect, even in their old age, even after all those years and all the history they'd been through. And Peter says, believing wives today demonstrate that they are Sarah's children of faith if they follow her model in this, seeking to do that which is right before God within their marriage, doing so even in circumstances that might be fearful. And you know, Sarah's marriage, it involved walking with Abraham on a very, very long journey of faith, leaving their homeland, trusting in the promises of God, facing all manner of difficult and challenging circumstances. And she trusted the Lord her God and she sought as best as she could to honor her husband, not perfectly, of course, but perseveringly through many ups and downs. And so that's the calling. That's the model. That's the countercultural pattern that Peter sets before us. Now, there is so much here, isn't there, that stretches our thinking and reshapes our outlook. That that's just going to be true for all of us, I think, as we read these words in our context. But one of the questions we need to grapple with as we think about the teaching Peter sets out for us here in these verses is the question of how it is that believing wives should deal with imperfect husbands if you happen to be married uh, to such a person. I think that's all husbands, by the way. But husbands who may be very hard to follow at times in terms of leadership. You know, Peter isn't, isn't saying here, it's quite clear he isn't saying here, that a believing wife is only called upon to be subject to a, a husband who is perfectly godly and who is flawless. In fact, you'll notice his initial focus here in the passage is on husbands who, verse 1, do not obey the word, the word of God, who don't know God, who haven't received the gospel of grace. And so right here at the beginning, we know that such a husband will not be living and will not be leading according to the word of God. So there are going to be challenges. There's going to be tensions involved in that for the believing wife. A believing wife seeking to follow the leadership of an unbelieving husband, she is going to face some tough days in doing that when the husband may not be leading in a direction that is honoring to, to the Lord. And she's going to have to figure out, she's going to have to navigate and discern how to honor the Lord first and foremost while showing a loving respect to her husband. That's not a, an easy path to walk. But even within a marriage where there is a shared faith in the Lord and a shared commitment to him and to his word, the husband is still going to be very deeply flawed, of course. That was the case with Abraham and Sarah, actually, and there were some dark days. There were some major missteps there, major failures in Abraham's leadership along the way. So the call of this passage, it is not nullified by the imperfection of the husband. There's not a, a, a fulsome get-out clause there. 
This is about navigating imperfection on every side, about seeking to follow the leadership of a man who is deeply flawed as all men are. But I, I, I feel we do need to pause here just for a moment and consider the tragic reality, I just felt the burden of this, the tragic reality of situations of abuse. You know, what does a believing wife do if there is a situation of abuse that is destructive and dangerous within the home? What, what then? You know, must she simply endure it and submit to it? Well, of course, here we need to see that the Bible sets out standards and expectations, both for husband and wife. We're going to focus on the husband in just a moment, but just glance with me ahead, if you would, to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We're going to come to that in a moment for some more attention. But we need to see here how utterly incompatible a picture of abuse is with the vision that Peter is casting for marriage. To be sure, the instruction to be subject isn't presented with a, a huge get-out clause. You know, be subject as long as he's the perfect husband. No, that's not it. We've talked about that. He may not obey the word. He may not be a believer. But the call to be subject does not extend to a call to submit to abuse. We, we mustn't allow it to be applied in that way. And as we widen out our reflection on this important question, and, and we consider the broader teaching of the Bible, we remember that all people, men and women, husbands and wives, are made in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth. You see, the broader framework of this passage here and of the scriptures as a whole will not permit us, will not permit us to push the application of the instruction to wives who must submit to a pattern of dehumanizing or demeaning or destructive treatment doesn't go that far. Please don't read verse 1 of chapter 3 as an instruction to submit to abuse. No, if that's your situation. Please seek help. Please don't hear God's word saying you need to just accept that and put up with that. That's not the vision that's being cast here for marriage. That's not the picture. We live in a fallen and a sinful world. You and I, we are fallen and we are sinful people. And so, so we receive the Bible's teaching on marriage in the midst of much brokenness and heartache and sin, but the picture here, the vision that is cast, otherworldly as it is, it's a beautiful and a wholesome one. The challenge is very great, the call, it is very, very good. And Peter shows us how a believing wife living in this way, seeking to live in this way, will commend the gospel, will please the Lord. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, a message called Marriage According to God's Design. We've been taking a look at this call to wives. Next time, we're going to look at a call to husbands and really a call for all of us. If you ever miss a broadcast or you just want to go back and listen to it again, you can do that at our website. Come to EncounterTheTruth.org where you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is on this station because of your generosity. So thank you for giving to and supporting this ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that you've picked out, Jonathan. It is called The Definition of Christianity. And can you give us a, a bit of an idea of what's in this book? Well, I think there are a lot of myths around about what the Christian message is and what defines the Christian faith. I think a lot of people will think that they they know and they have a pretty good idea of what Christianity is all about, but actually haven't gone back to the source material and really investigated that question. And it's a hugely important question. 
And here in the definition of Christianity, David Gooding and John Lennox take us back to the source material, to the book of Acts, where we see the apostles engaging with the philosophers and the teachers of the first century world and explaining what the Christian gospel is, who Jesus is, and what it means to trust him and to follow him. And I think this is a vitally important study. I think it's going to be a real help to Christian believers, clarifying what we understand and what we believe. And it's going to be a real help to those who are investigating the faith and actually wanting to know, in all honesty and in all seriousness, what is Christianity all about. I hope this book will be a real encouragement and a real help to you. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book, The Definition of Christianity, is our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For producer Mark Bretta and our Bible teacher, Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.